What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, for five years, Donald Trump has refused to release his tax returns, the first president since the 1970s to do so. And now we know why. In news that hit the 2020 campaign like a hurricane, the New York Times reports that Donald Trump is a big tax cheat. In 10 of the last 15 years, he paid absolutely no taxes, zero. And in 2016, as a candidate for president, and 2017, his first year as president, he paid a total of $750, less than the waitress in your restaurant pays or the clerk who checks you out at the grocery store. The New York Times story also comes on the heels of a bombshell new book called White House Inc. by Forbes senior editor Dan Alexander, which unmasks Donald Trump as a colossal failure as a businessman. He lies about how much his properties are worth, lies about how much revenue they generate, lies about how rich he is, all the while continuing to make money from and to promote the Trump brand while serving as president. Dan Alexander joins us to talk today about how Donald Trump turned the presidency into a business. Dan Alexander, good to catch up with you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks for having me. So, um... Back in 2000, one of the several times that Donald Trump thought about running for president before he actually did, he made the comment that he could be the first person to run for president and actually make money at it. Um, (laughs) Your book, let let me just say, by the way, your book is one of the most thoroughly, carefully researched books and just stock full of facts that I have ever read. So thank you. uh, Congratulations. I mean, you have almost 200 pages of footnotes, right? So (laughs) (laughs) to make sure people but but back to Donald Trump, what he said in 2000, uh, according to your book, he's done it and he's still doing it, right? Well, he's done it in certain ways. He certainly tried to do it. And there are certain ways, like, for example, he is taking money that has been put into his campaign by his political supporters. Uh, and then moving that money into his business while simultaneously not contributing any of his own funds, which are substantial, to the campaign. So therefore, it's other people's money turning into revenue for him. That's an example of, yes, of him making money on running for president. However, uh, business isn't predictable. And (laughs) at a lot of his uh, properties, the fact that he is president and that his brand is now so politically charged versus just being a luxury brand that was famous. And, oh yeah, I saw The Apprentice. Now everyone has an opinion about it. And these aren't mild opinions in most cases. And so you lose a lot of potential customers. So fewer people are going to Trump National, Doral, his golf resort in Miami. Fewer people are showing up at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. than otherwise would be. And so the values of those properties have taken a real hit. And overall, if you look at his portfolio, 
he's actually poorer today than he was when he took office. If he had done what all of the ethics advisors had suggested and just sold his business and then taken the proceeds and reinvested them in the market, you know, the last time that I counted, and it changes based on what the market is doing, but the last time that I counted, he would have been $800 million richer if he had just taken their advice. And of course, he would have uh, not had to deal with all the ethical headaches that he's been confronting over the last couple of years. So in other words, he made a gamble uh, that I'm not going to divest uh, the way people, even I remember at the time, the Wall Street Journal editorial board advised. He right. made a gamble. He wasn't going to do it. And that gamble failed, didn't it? It was both a bad political decision, which we probably knew at the time, given that the Wall Street Journal editorial board was criticizing it. And so was almost everyone else. But surprisingly, it was also a terrible business decision. And I think for future presidents and for future billionaire presidents, I don't think we're done after one. <laughs> it serves as a warning that if you want to do what's best for your presidency, you should get out of business. But if you want to do what's best for your business, you should also get out of business. Yeah. Uh, do we know how much Donald Trump is worth today? You yeah, right now we have... Yeah, right now we have him at two and a half billion dollars. Um, and, you know, this is an exercise that for Forbes, I do it, you know, twice a year. We take it very seriously. My notes on it uh, are over 110 pages long every time that we do it every six months. Whoa. We know every, uh, you know, profitability number into his properties. We know everything that we can know. And that's a lot. In fact, a lot more people, a lot than most people would imagine. And we tally up all of his debts. Right now, we have him at $1.1 billion. And we tally up all of his assets. We have that at $3.7 billion. And because of rounding differences, <laughs> the total uh -huh. comes to $2.5 billion for his net worth. Right. Now, um, everything you said in the book is sort of confirmed and verified in spades by the New York Times bombshell that broke um, Sunday evening, I guess it was, right. about... Uh, taxes, that he paid no taxes for 10 of the last 15 years, um, and $750 in 2016 and 2017. Did you know that? And were you <laughs> or were you surprised? So what we knew was the contours of the business, which businesses were doing well, which ones weren't, why they were struggling, why they were doing well. Uh, you know, commercial real estate was doing very well. The hotels, particularly Doral and the one in D.C. were struggling. We knew all of that. What we didn't know and what the Times reporting uh, was best at was explaining how Trump managed to take a business that is very valuable and does throw out substantial operating profits. In other words, its day-to-day -day business does make a lot of money and turn those operating profits on a tax form filed to the IRS into either minuscule profits or huge losses. That difference there between what happens on the actual business level mm -hmm. and what happens on the form that the IRS sees was where their reporting was masterful. Right. Uh, did he do anything from what you can see, from what the Times reported and what you've reported, illegal in not paying taxes? Or did he just take advantage of loopholes in the law? So, you know, we have um, a slow, careful legal process for a reason, and that's to make sure that when we say people committed crimes, that they did commit crimes. But they don't open up investigations if they don't suspect things. 
And certainly the evidence that we have uh, raises a lot of questions about whether Trump was violating the law or not. I think it would be premature to definitively declare, yes, he definitely broke the law, but certainly it doesn't look good for the president. So, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, certainly not a tax lawyer. Um, there are many opportunities for real estate developers to um, to reduce their tax burden, if you will, right, legally. Mm -hmm. uh, but tax evasion is a federal crime, mm -hmm. right? Is that what people? Yeah, are and that's at? And, yeah, and that's the that's those that's the line that we're trying to figure out. You know, which side is he on? There's no question that Trump and his team are very, very aggressive in trying to avoid taxes. And some of the ways that they avoid them are perfectly legal. You know, you're allowed to deduct interest expenses from large loans that you hold, which of which there are many in Trump's portfolio. You're allowed to take depreciation, of which there is a lot in Trump's portfolio, particularly on his golf properties that he's just sunk enormous amounts of cash into that he doesn't seem to be getting much of a return on. So those are things that are, are legal and uh, frankly expected for somebody in the real estate business. Where it gets murkier <laughs> and where the investigators will have uh, more work to do is on things like, for example, you know, it appears that they were paying Ivanka Trump a consulting fee at the same time that she was serving as an employee of the Trump organization. Now, that would allow Donald Trump to reduce his tax burden, uh, but it would cost the American taxpayers money. And it's not, it doesn't look like you are allowed to do that. So um, that's a question where there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of investigation there. But there are example after example of these things that they took very aggressive stances on um, that might expose them to some issues. Is there any way to estimate what? a man who's worth two and a half billion dollars uh, should have paid in taxes? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I'll tell you this, that his operating profits from his businesses are about $160 million a year. Okay. Now, you're going to be able to deduct some things after $160 million, even if you're playing by all the rules. You're going to be able to deduct depreciation, right. interest, and all of that. And although interest you can figure out very easily, depreciation is a much, much more difficult thing to estimate, which makes it difficult to know exactly how low he could have gotten that bill. But what we do know is sort of a maximum ceiling because of the size of the operating profits. You know, if you take whatever, 30% of $160 million, you know, that's about the most that he could have paid. So call it 50 and change uh, right. in taxes. It, but it would have certainly been less than that. And that that and with the ongoing tax rate, he would have paid that rate on 110 million, is what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. On on 160 million dollars, you know, roughly yeah. in operating profits per year. One of the things that you point out in the book is that it must be difficult uh, to figure out a how much Donald Trump is worth and or b how much he owes in taxes, because um, I'll use the word he lies. He lies about how much money his properties are making. He lies about uh, how much square footage he has. He lies about how many floors are in his buildings, how many rooms are in his buildings or hotels. Um, right. I mean, and, and, you know, I'll use that word too. It's, it's consistent enough. And what he says is divergent enough from the facts that we know and can see in documents. And he is 
familiar enough with his own business that there is no way to look at the quantity and uh, and quality of his statements and conclude that those are anything else but lies. He is actively lying to try to get Forbes to estimate that his net worth is higher than it actually is. Now, the good news is, is that real estate, for all of its murkiness, is actually a fairly transparent industry. Because there are large loans against these buildings, and because those loans are chopped up and sold, there's a lot of information that flows to investors about Trump's financial standing. And so we have independent documentation that tells us what the profitability is of his different properties. And then we can talk to industry experts. You know, we spoke to over 100 people in various different parts of his industry to figure out what these things might actually be worth. And ultimately, at the end of this 110 page document, you get a number. <laughs> and that yeah. number changes month to month. But right now, it's at two and a half billion. Right. So one of the uh, reasons that Donald Trump is where he is, is he sold himself to the American people as a phenomenally, phenomenally successful businessman. Mm -hmm. uh, you've looked at it, every aspect of it, and your book, White House Inc. How good a businessman is he? He's very good at certain things. He's very good, for example, at you know uh, negotiating with his lenders so that then he doesn't have to pay them back as much money as he originally said that he would. He's very good at delaying legal fights in ways when he is pinched that allow the rest of his business to recover, and then he can pay whatever penalty or settlement he has to, to pay in that legal fight. So he's really, really good at a couple of things. What he's not good at is making strategic business decisions. Uh, you know, if you just look at Trump National Doral, his golf resort in Miami. He bought the thing for $150 million. He then invested $213 million of fresh cash into that business. So that takes you to $363 million. We now value the business at $153 million. So that's $210 million down the drain. That's bad, bad business. He doesn't necessarily recognize the return that he's going to get on a dollar. In the places where he's been successful, Trump Tower was a great development for him. He was able to sell sort of the opulence and the luxury. He is a great, great salesman. And he sold a bunch of condos in that building and made a boatload of money. The other properties in which he's done very well are in some cases ones where he's bought at rock bottom. So for instance, he bought and then reinvested in 40 Wall Street, which is a skyscraper in mm -hmm. the financial district of New York. Both the purchase and the reinvestment was a reported $35 million. That building right now is worth an estimated $401 million. So that's, if you buy it at bargain prices, you can, you can do pretty well. And he's done that in certain situations. He's also in other situations, just to put it frankly, gotten lucky. His, mo his two most successful deals, 1290 Avenue of the Americas and 555 California Street, are deals in which he owns a 30% interest alongside publicly traded firm Vornado Realty Trust. Now, Vornado runs a very, very professional operation. And because they manage, or excuse me, own 70% of these properties, they're the ones running the show. And they've made an incredible amount of money at those buildings. Those two buildings alone are worth more than $900 million. Now, that's before debt. So th these are, are huge properties that have done really, really well. And you look at the whole portfolio, 
and you look for a conclusion. Is he a good business person or not? The answer is, well, not really, but he does do some things very well. And his tenacity and his salesmanship are probably his two greatest traits from a business perspective. Yeah. And I guess the other side of that story, uh, examples, you mentioned the Doral Golf Course, um, the Plaza Hotel uh, in yes. New York, not such a yeah. great success, right? Well, you know, the, the old <laughs> phrase, like, don't, you know, don't get too excited when you see the buffet or whatever, don't order everything on the menu. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, that's kind of what he did with the Plaza Hotel. He bought the thing for $407 million. And he said at the time that he purchased it, that he knew he was making a bad deal. But basically that he just couldn't get over the idea that he could own the plaza. You know, he could see it out of the window <laughs> of his office in Trump Tower. And it's a beautiful building. And yeah. so he way overpaid Classic. for it. And of course, yeah, it's amazing. And of course, within no time, you know, the, the property was in bankruptcy. How much uh, how's Mar-a-Lago doing? Mar-a-Lago is doing fantastic uh, from a business perspective. And, you know, if you think about the sorts of clientele that Mar-a-Lago attracts. So you're looking for very wealthy people who really want to hobnob with other very wealthy people. And is there a more exciting guest to have at a, at a party than the president of the United States? Probably not. And what if he's the host of the party every single time that he's there? So uh, lots of people have poured lots of money into Mar-a-Lago. The initiation fees and the amount of revenue that came into that business jumped very dramatically when Trump won the election and in his first year in office. They've flattened off a little bit since then, uh, but that's a, an example of a property that's, that has certainly benefited from him being president. We value that one at $180 million. Uh, are the many bankruptcies of Donald Trump, or several at least, uh, do they indicate uh, Donald Trump is just uh, skillful at using bankruptcy law, or again, that he's failed uh, as a businessman. <laughs> Mostly they indicate the big appetite thing. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. he, he spends a lot of money to buy properties and a lot of the money that he spends is not his. It comes from banks and eventually banks want to get that money back. And so if your properties don't throw off enough cash to pay him back, then eventually you declare bankruptcy and they take them. <laughs> that's, that's basically how that goes. Uh, so no, there's nothing really skillful about being forced into bankruptcy. That It just is it just means that you've been put into a bad position. And that's happened over and over with him. Uh, and again, today we're talking with Dan Alexander. He's a, a senior editor at Forbes, author of the great new book, White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. And of course, a link for you to buy the book, uh, White House Inc., will be in the episode notes. We'll be right back with Dan Alexander in just a moment. Today's podcast with Dan Alexander brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. Over 320,000 strong firefighters and paramedics in the United States and Canada, protecting 85% of the population of both of those countries. Under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, the firefighters and paramedics are on the front lines protecting American families every day. Also, I might add, the very first union to endorse Joe Biden for president. Check out their website at IAFF.org. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. 
I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with Dan Alexander from Forbes magazine, author of White House, Inc., so uh, how Donald Trump turned the presidency into a business. Dan, on the back cover of the book, you quote Donald Trump from January 11, 2017, quote, I could actually run my business and run government at the same time. I don't like the way that looks, but I would be able to do that if I wanted to. I would be the only one that would be able to do that again. That's what he's doing. Right. <laughs> well, you know, there's been a lot of confusion about this because at the start of his presidency in that very same press conference that that quote was came from, he said, basically, I'm handing over the management of the business to my two kids, Don Jr. and Eric, while Ivanka is going to come join me in Washington. So a lot of people thought at the time that that meant, oh, OK, he's out, but he's not out. You know, you're not out of the business if you still own all of the business. So Trump, you know, is in his 70s and obviously has a lot of other interests going on. It's not unusual for a tycoon to step back at that age and say, hey, kids, you guys run the day to day. I'll do something else. In this case, that something else just happens to be him running for president. Now, there are other promises that were made during that same press conference. For example, Trump said he's not going to talk with his children about how the business is doing. Well, about a month after that press conference, I was inside Trump Tower in Eric Trump's office asking him about this new position that he found himself in. You know, one of the most interesting business positions to be in in U.S. history. Here's this young guy who's just taken over this thing. And I said, so how, you know, how informed are you going to keep your father? And he said, well, you know, I'm going to tell him about the profitability of the businesses and that sort of thing. So right there at the outset, you have an admission that the promise that Trump was going to be totally separate from his business is not true. And then if you look at other comments that they've made, for example, Donald Trump himself was quoted in the New York Post just a couple of weeks ago, 
opining on their decision to sell and then elect to pull off the market once the coronavirus thing happened, the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. And he phrased that in terms of like, I decided this. Okay, so you have the president and his business is making very large decisions and he is saying that he was involved in those decisions. So he's certainly not out of it from an ownership perspective and from a money perspective. The money still accrues to him and that's what's most important. But there's also very large questions about how much of a, of a, a uh, step back he's actually made in terms of the management. Obviously, there's some because he's got his hands full with a lot of other things. But is he fully out? Doesn't look like it. But isn't he also um, pushing his brand as president, promoting his brand? Uh, it's well known in Washington, D.C. that the only place he's ever been out to dinner is the Trump Hotel. The only, place, the only place he plays golf is at the Sterling Club, his club in Northern Virginia, or Bedminster, or um, the, the, not Doral, but the other one in Florida. At any rate, his, his courses, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a way of still being involved in the business. Yeah, absolutely. Right? He, gets a, he gets an up-close-and-personal up tour of his businesses <laughs> very, very regularly as he is dropping in. And, and, you know, is there any doubt that he's looking at at how the things look while he's walking through the spaces and making sure that things are just right. I, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody could credibly say that he's closing his eyes while he's walking through the, through the properties. You know, there are other things like, for example, um, first of all, the campaign money that we mentioned earlier that is going back into his businesses, but also, you know, a lot of taxpayer dollars, uh, you know, both the secret service, which is every time that he goes, they have to go and therefore spend money at these properties but also, you know, lots of different departments in government have spent large sums at these properties. Uh, it's difficult to get a full handle on how much money has, in fact, gone from the U.S. Treasury into Trump's businesses. But if you just look at some work that was done in the beginning of his presidency and you sort of model that out for the entire presidency, then by the end of his first term, he will have taken in more than $2 million in taxpayer money into these businesses. So there are a lot of ways in which he's actively pushing funds uh, toward his companies. And then of course, there's the thing where now that he is president, his whole business, which has a million different entry points for people to be paying money, becomes a marketplace. And it's a one of a kind marketplace where anyone anywhere can elect to pray the president of the United States, small sums by, for example, buying a hamburger at a hotel or large sums for, by example, buying a multi-million dollar condo in one of his buildings. And all of those sorts of deals are continuing on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Uh, and of course, part of the benefit of declaring us a candidate uh, on Inauguration Day 2017 is that since then, he's been able to charge his campaign rent yeah. and the Republican National Committee rent and countless Republican committees and events rent for <laughs> holding events in their in his properties. Yeah, that's right. And the latest documents show that his campaign has now moved since he started the re-election on the day that he took office, $2.3 million into his businesses. And if you include the campaign's uh, what are called joint fundraising committees, which are basically committees that the campaign tag teams on with the RNC, and you include the RNC money, that's at least $6.9 million. And then you have to consider, you know, all of the other uh, you know, Republican candidates and Republican groups that are right. separately hosting events 
at various Trump properties. And the numbers actually start to get fairly significant, even for someone as rich as Donald Trump. Right. How much foreign money were you able to track going into Trump properties? That's certainly been a question here at the Trump Hotel in Washington, but other properties as well. Yeah. So it depends on you know what you mean by foreign money, but let's just focus on the most narrow definition, foreign government money that we can track. So, you know, Trump in the same press conference when he made all of these promises, uh, his team said that he was going to donate profits from their properties to the U.S. Treasury that came in from foreign governments. And that has not happened. And we only need to want, look at one example to prove that that has not happened. On the 20th floor of Trump Tower, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, which is a state-owned bank, it's at least 70% owned by the government of China pays $1.9 million a year of rent to Trump Tower Commercial LLC, which is 100% owned by the President of the United States. So you have the government of China paying the President of the United States while the President of the United States is negotiating over various issues with huge implications with the government of China. Now, not all of that is profit. In that building, it looks like about 40 to 42% of the rent turns into profit. But if you just take the first two years of Trump's presidency, you say 1.9 million plus 1.9 million equals 3.8 million. And then you take the margin on that and you only count 40%. You're still at more than three times the amount of money that the Trump organization says it has paid to the U.S. Treasury to account for all foreign money flowing into the Trump empire. And we haven't even gotten to the Qatar Investment Authority in 555 California Street to the Bank of America, excuse me, Bank of India, which is state owned in 555 California Street to the Abu Dhabi Tourism and Culture Authority in Trump Tower to the very famous and well-publicized payments coming into the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., including one that we know about is that the Saudis paid $270,000 from basically the end of 2016 to the start of 2017. But that's just an easy to track example. There's countless others constantly flowing in, nor is it to mention any of the payments in his hotels in Vegas or in Chicago or his resorts in Scotland. And there's no way to get a full accounting of any of this. Even the Trump organization has admitted that it is not trying to actively count all of the money that's coming in from foreign governments, unless those foreign governments outright tell them. It's sort of like a don't ask, don't tell policy. And so no one knows the full extent of the money flowing in, but we do know that it's more than the Trump organization has been suggesting. And if you add the Trump properties in other countries, like Mm -hmm. Turkey and the Philippines, isn't Mm -hmm. this just the kind of um, problem that our founding fathers were worried about? Well, sure. I mean, especially in the examples where you can tie that money directly to governments. Now, in some of these licensing deals, like the ones that you referenced, (laughs) the characters involved have close ties to the government, but they're not necessarily the government itself. So, for example, in the Philippines, uh, you know, shortly after the election, Duterte, the leader of the Philippines, appointed Trump's business partner to be a special envoy to the United States. Actually, forgive me, I think that was just before the election. Yeah. So you know that's a business tie, but it's not direct foreign money from a government coming in. But there are plenty of examples that do come directly from governments, including the ones that we just outlined. 
You also talk about, um, and you've referenced here in our conversation, um, Donald Trump owes a lot of money, right? He does owe a lot of money. Yeah, he owes over a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Who's he owe his money to? Yeah. Uh, and what's the role of Deutsche Bank? So Deutsche Bank is his largest individual lender. And Deutsche Bank has several key loans to Donald Trump. So in Chicago, Deutsche Bank is lending him $45 million. In, at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., there's an $170 million mortgage from Deutsche Bank. And at Trump National Doral in Miami, there are two mortgages, one for $16 million, one for $109 million. Those add up to $125 million from Deutsche Bank. Whoa. Deutsche Bank has sort of been Trump's savior in terms of when he needs a loan on a property. Uh, and this goes back years and years and years. Uh, Deutsche Bank has been a steady partner for him. Um, they're not his only lender. He does have a lot of other lenders. And the idea that Deutsche Bank is the only one that would lend him money is, is not borne out just by the fact that he's gotten mortgages from banks that are not Deutsche Bank while he's been president. So, but they are very, very significant. And they, you know, that relationship dates back a long time. I was speaking to one of his old bankers at Deutsche Bank one day, and I was sort of asking him about the relationship. And he said, you know, one thing that surprised me is that early on when we did our first deal with him, and then we were going to do a second deal with him, a different bank came in and offered Trump better terms at the last minute. And Trump, who has a reputation for being, you know, such a tough negotiator, basically stiff-armed the second bank and said, no, I'm going with Deutsche Bank. And his explanation of that was that this due diligence process is very painful for people, and particularly for somebody like Donald Trump, who has complicated finances and, frankly, questionable finances. So the fact that Deutsche Bank had already greenlit him meant mm -hmm. that he had a certain element of loyalty to Deutsche Bank. Now, that loyalty ended up evaporating at one point when he sued them for over $600 million, but then they ended up becoming friends again when they started uh, lending him additional money from a different branch of the bank. So Deutsche Bank's a key player, but there are a lot of other lenders too. Right. Um, and finally, you talk in the book about Father Fred Trump yes. and the, his influence on uh, on Donald Trump. I mean, he more than anybody else teed Donald Trump up, right, for this whole taking over the business. What yeah. Well, you see. Well, there's a lot of influence, and it starts with just the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of yeah. the money comes from Fred Trump, so that's that's a heck of a way to tee somebody up. But but secondly, and perhaps more interestingly, is the business style. You know, Fred Trump uh, was a master at manipulating media. He basically was issuing press releases before press releases were a common thing, you know, just sending out bulletins because he knew that the newspapers in New York were hungry for material. And so he would send out stuff and he realized free advertising that he could get for his properties. And of course, Trump has taken that and uh, expanded it in ways that no other real estate developer uh, comes close. A second one is, you know, turning politics into profit. So Fred Trump, you know, worked on a lot of uh, government-backed development projects, ones where the government was, you know, after World War II, the government was very eagerly lending a lot of money to people who were interested in both buying houses, but also in developing houses. And Fred Trump, uh, with a lot of savvy, uh, made his fortune basically benefiting from those government programs. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump then has worked to get a lot of tax abatements over his business career 
And obviously now there's a lot of overlap with the government and his business that we're seeing. The third thing is sort of the strategic self-dealing. So, you know, Fred Trump uh, used companies that he owned, where he owned one company and maybe he owned part of another company, and he would do deals between these two companies in ways that would benefit himself. And Donald Trump uh, pursued the same strategy for years in business, uh, both in Atlantic City and elsewhere. And now, of course, the uh, self-dealing has extended into the relationship between the government and his business. Dan Alexander, our guest, his new book, White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. A link to buy the book is included in the uh, notes to this episode of the Bill Press Pod. Uh, Dan, thank you so much. Congratulations again. Uh, and I want to say I look forward to the sequel, which <laughs> is which will deal with uh, Donald Jr. and Eric and especially Ivanka. This story's not going away, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Dan. Thanks <laughs> Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for our podcast today with Dan Alexander. His book, again, is White House, Inc., tremendous book, How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. And, of course, a link for you to buy the book is included in the episode notes to this edition of the Bill Press Pod. If you haven't already done so, please, we ask you again to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by just going wherever you're listening to this podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And for a lot of fun, follow me on Twitter every day, every hour of every day, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That's it. Stay strong. Stay safe. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.